Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trughauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Last week, the U.S. elected Joe Biden to be its 46th president. What can we expect from him? In particular, the U.S.'s foreign policy has changed drastically under the Trump administration with the America First mindset. To probe this issue, I'm talking today with Hilda Restab and Scott Gates. Hilda is Associate Professor of International Studies at Björknes University College. Her dissertation was on the concept of American exceptionalism understood as an identity and its effect on U.S. foreign policy traditions. She later developed that into her first book, American Exceptionalism, an idea that made a nation and remade the world. She's previously worked at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, NUPI, and is often seen in the media as an American politics analyst. Scott Gates is a research professor at PRIO, a professor at the University of Oslo, editor of the Journal of Peace Research, and of the International Area Studies Review. He's joined me on the podcast before to discuss Black Lives Matter on episode two. Welcome, Hilda and Scott. Thanks for joining me. And we've had this podcast uh, episode planned for a while now, so I'm glad that it's finally happening. I'm also glad that we have somewhat of a resolution. When we planned to record on November 11th, we weren't actually sure if we would even have the election results. Um, So, and we arguably still are a little bit waiting to see what happens. But Biden has definitely uh, unequivocally won, even if Trump does not want to admit that. Um, So I wanted to start off with a question... What does the America First foreign policy uh, really mean? And how do you think the Democratic Party is going to respond to the last four years of the Trump administration? Hilda, maybe you want to start. Thank you for having me. I thought you were going to ask us who's going to win the election, which uh, (laughs) we're still (laughs) trying to figure out. But um, so uh, my research uh, focuses on the role that American exceptionalism understood as an identity or a narrative has played in U.S. foreign policy. And so uh, in this era of America first, I've been trying to grapple with how that fits into um, the history of the American story about itself and its role in the world. And actually coming from Europe, um, America first is quite recognizable. Um, I think if you're going to sort of explain the theory of America in quotation marks that America first uh, builds on. I think it's a sort of a right-wing idea of an ethno-religious state um, that is trying to renegotiate or redraw um, the borders of who, what is the United States and who are the real Americans and what it should mean in the world. And the way that that has um affected foreign policy is most dramatically in basically uh, rejecting um, the way that the United States has tried to lead uh, internationally since World War II, um, basically rejecting what many uh, has been referring to as the so-called liberal international order, which we can discuss and disaggregate later. Um which is sort of the big broad picture, but then it has specific foreign policy implications such as the so-called Muslim ban, which is both a domestic policy and a sort of foreign policy, I would argue, Uh, other border policies as we've seen along the Southern border Um, and, and this general 
which also goes along with right-wing radicalism, authoritarianism, and a, and a very unusual in an American context, sort of open and public affinity for other authoritarian leaders. And I can tell now that I'm having a very long answer. So I'll end with one more sentence, <laughs> which I think that Trump's defeat actually cuts off the possibility of a, a, a sort of seamless transition from what many Americans thought of as a liberal American century to what was potentially the beginning of a sort of illiberal uh, American century. So in that sense, it's great news for those of us who are not fans of a liberalism. Um, but it's uh, only, I think, a, a short pause because we don't know what will happen in the next election. So, Scott, maybe you could take us back a little bit. Um, what was the foreign policy kind of what, what were the guiding principles uh, during the Obama administration? Because a lot of people have framed Biden's win as almost an extension of Obama's administration. And I think there, there are good reasons to argue for that. And maybe we can look to the past to, to kind of think about what we might expect to see. So maybe could you give us a little recap on that and tell us what do you, what do you think Biden is going to do? Uh, you know, in his first few months and even starting now. Okay, but can I, I wanted to add something to what Hilda was saying first, um, very briefly. Um, I really like the answer. Uh, so you're not going to get big fireworks right away from me. <laughs> uh, but I, I very, very much agree that there's an interesting aspect of America first. Kind of an ironic element is that it's not it's not true to America first. Um, it's much more true of a European uh, populism than what has been populism in the U.S. The general trait uh, where he's tried to make links to the past but don't does not exhibit them and exhibit them in a very haphazard way is towards what was American neo-isolationism. And the neo-isolationism was what uh, the neoliberal... Uh, post-World War II order was reacting to. Um, and that aspect is still part of a coalition that supports Trump and um, America first, but it, it exhibits the qualities that Hilda was talking about far more than a neo-isolationism. But when Trump, Trump's not an idiot, he's almost always underestimated uh, in his canniness. I don't think, I think he's uh, amazingly ignorant, but not uh, stupid, um, uh, despite his uh, claims about pumping bleach into your system to get rid of viruses. But that said, uh, uh, the neo-isolationist aspect is not really the the what used to be an American first uh, orientation is not describe Trump America first. Um, uh, policies. In terms of Obama, the Obama is pretty much part of the liberal order um, in very much uh, in ori orientation towards um, protecting, uh, if working in multilateral settings, um, epitomizing the Obama order, I would say, was the Trans-Pacific uh, trade deal, uh, that arrangement, which Trump was very quick to abandon, the Paris uh, um, Climate Change Accord, and uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Those three policies were kind of the 
crowning touches to the Obama administration. And as identified as Obama touches, Trump was very, very eager to get rid of them because anything that he felt touched or smelled of uh, Obama was to be eliminated as soon as possible. Mm. Um, Hilda, do you want to, do you want to add anything onto that? Well, the thing is, so I, I think the U S foreign policy has been in an, an era of flux for a while. Um, and I think when we look back on this time that we're living in, which unfortunately is uh, defined as interesting times, uh, <laughs> I think we, we're going to want to draw the, it back to at least um, the war on terror. Because what Obama was reacting to was the hubris and overreaction and unilateralism of, of the Bush administration. And so in many ways, I actually see Obama's grand strategy as a sort of modified restraint and retrenchment um, as trying to do what I think many people think Trump also wants to do, just in a much more competent, diplomatic and still internationalist way, i.e. trying to draw down a little bit um, U.S. commitments and get out of, first of all, the Middle East in order to focus on more important areas and threats of the world, namely, namely China, which I actually think Trump and, and Obama would agree on, but there's an, a, there's a, um, an emotional component uh, to the Trump uh, perspective on the world, which Scott mentioned, which because Obama was doing it, Trump can't. There's a sort of total rejection. Um, but in a, in, a, in a way, I do think we can actually view Obama's attempt at a, at, a, at a changing grand strategy and Trump's attempt at a very different grand strategy as sort of two versions of the same uh, or symptoms of the same diagnosed problem, i.e. the U.S. can't continue. It can't go from being the so-called leader of the free world to the so-called leader of the liberal international order because we see what happens with things such as the war on terror, which just leads us to overcommitment and counterproductive interventions that leads to anti-Americanism and other reactions like terrorism. But I mean, how can we balance these two views? I, I myself as a young and very, very um, leftist voter have always uh, struggled with this idea of, of the U.S. being the world's police. And, and that's like, a term that a lot of people use, obviously, is a very pejorative term. But um, then Trump's America First policy isn't also not what we want. Um, so, I mean, what what is the way forward for the Democratic Party to balance not being the world's police, also not being extremely um, nationalist and populist in that way, and yet still taking care of Americans? I mean, it's it's damned if you do, damned if you, if you don't. Do either of you have any immediate thoughts on that? I think um, that's a really, really good question. And actually, I think that's going to be the big debate in the Democratic Party going forward. Um, Because I think Biden represents the old order in U.S. foreign policy where um, the, the theory of America, in quotation marks, that that foreign policy and grand strategy builds on is the United States as um defined by this idea of American exceptionalism 
meaning that the U.S. Uh, is built on these high-minded Enlightenment ideals and ideas and institutions, and that because of that, it has a, a special role to play in the world. Uh, and you know, from there, you can take leader of the free world and leader of the liberal international order uh, in a straight line. Uh, and I, the, <laughs> ironically. I don't, I'm not sure to what degree progressives in the Democratic Party know how they feel about that. I think there's a, you can tell from the rumblings that there is a general um, skepticism of what came before. Like you said, not wanting the U.S. to intervene everywhere and be the world's policeman. But the big question is what comes, what's the alternative? Because the Trump style nationalist um, foreign policy is not attractive to progressives. This, the other um, approach that uh, you often find in academia is the, from real, realist theories of international relations, you know, just sort of a restrained power-based grand strategy also is not attractive to progressives because you, you're missing the ideals and ideas that drive the left. So I am very... I'm actually very curious to see if the progressive left of the Democratic Party will be able to sort of come up with its own competing vision for the United States and what its role in the world should be. Um, because if not, they're going to default to, I mean, the, the, the power base in the Democratic Party is with the moderates, it's with the Clintons, the Bidens, the Susan Rices, the, uh, the Obamas. Um, so it, it's not, uh, you know, it's not the left side of the party. I think the left party, there are elements of the left um, who uh, find neo-isolationism appealing. Um, let's just just get out of the world. The problem with that orientation, and it won't succeed, is there's going to be lobby groups. There's a human rights um, travesty. Um, people will be want to become engaged. Um, there's the Ouija issue with regards to China. Um, most leftists are sympathetic to those lobby efforts, um, standing then expressing dissatisfaction with China and not disengaging is not really an easy option. Um, eh, there's going to be other uh, devastating, um, there might be natural disasters that occur. Um, I think total disengagement is unattractive, withdrawing. So one of the first things Biden's going to be doing is re-engaging with WHO, um, more international coordination for disease control and um, dealing with epidemics and pandemics. Um, those types of policies are going to take uh, uh, top priority in the new administration. And I, I don't see how the left is going to react to those things, because in general, they're going to support them. But the problem is that those are critical elements of the liberal order, um, with the U.S. having played a historically dominant role in funding WHO. I mean, that was the devastating aspect of, of Trump withdrawing funding, is it's a a huge proportion, and there's no country that's coming anywhere close to it. Norway kind of works to fill in, but Norway is just five million people, maybe a rich country, but it can't it can't it can't come in and save the day in the way that the U.S. 
can um, or has been supporting those institutions. Um, and that's a critical problem for the international order um, so much. So there's, I, I, to some degree, I think that inertia will push us back to kind of an Obama orientation, but without a coherent uh, framing of other than kind of a neo-isolationist orientation, I just don't see the left. The left will express problems, especially if Biden is too eager for military intervention. Um, but short of military intervention, I don't see the left causing big troubles for him in the t without a coherent alternative view of U.S.'s role and the nature of the international system, aside from radical revisiting the nature of the market system and international finance. Uh, but that's a rhetoric. It's more of a rhetoric than a serious policy orientation. But I'm wondering, what is the progressives main critique of the U.S. role in the liberal international order? Is it that it is not liberal enough? Yeah. Be or no, it's not radical enough. It's liberal. Um, it's neoliberal. It's, it's not progressive, right? Right. It's And it's uh, dependent upon a capitalist market system. Oh, now we're really getting down to it, Scott. I like this. <laughs> because you, if if the if you could imagine a sort of progressive wing of the party uh, wanting to use American power for good, as they define it, right? So make the liberal international order less neoliberal, more progressive and just. And one of the issues I'm watching is Israel-Palestine, because that's one of the issues where you actually see the progressive left kind of, um, it has yet to have any policy um, effect, but they have changed the conversation in the Democratic Party quite radically, quite quickly, which is very interesting to follow. And of course, um, it, it would be one of those issue areas that could potentially change many dynamics if the U.S. Um, were able to adjust its historic policy there. That's actually really, really interesting. Um, the thought I had was uh, in the 70s, um, the uh, abortion issue was cutting across both parties. And by the late 80s, uh, Democrats were on one side and Republicans were on the other. Israel similarly cut across both parties for a long time. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was quite um, strong in Eisenhower. So Republicans mm -hmm. had been very strong against um, uh, Israeli policies on a number of occasions. Um, and over time, because of the growing influence of the uh, evangelical Christians, they've moved to an incredibly uh, strong, uh, hi uh, hyper-Zionistic view in support of Israel. That has been uh, Netanyahu has been very successful in um, in taking advantage of uh, and making but, it a partisan issue. Yeah, precisely. And as it becomes partisanized, uh, this will mean that the Biden administration has many more opportunities um, with regards to Israel that most Democratic Democrats have not been able politically to engage in. 
But I guess you could think of, in any case, the Biden administration is probably a Band-Aid, which is a a more cynical way of saying what Biden himself says, that he's a, you know, he's a bridge and he's a transition and he's whatever, um, which is true both for many reasons, both because he, he, he's, he's not representative of the, the generation that's coming in. <laughs> uh, and also um, he might not be around for a very long time, but of course his vice president is not a member of the progressive left. I don't think certainly not no, when it not comes to Israel, Palestine. Yeah, I think, I mean, you you said neoliberal, and I think Kamala Harris is uh, like the embodiment of, of neoliberalism. <laughs> right. So uh, there there's, um, I think for, for, for those of us who think that the Trump administration has been, um, in that it has been illiberal and authoritarian leaning, has been a disaster both for the United States and the world, it is a little bit worrisome to think that the Democratic Party might not be able to move forward with an alternative agenda because it, the two wings of the party will have difficulty agreeing on important things. Um, so we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to bring us a little bit back down to earth and, Scott, throw a question at you, which is... Um, what aspects of foreign policy are actually under Biden's control when he takes office and what policies are going to be constrained by the Senate? And we have the runoffs coming up in, in Georgia, and that could obviously change the balance as well. But a lot of times when we have a new president, we talk about the first hundred days. So like, what can we expect from, from Biden? We will expect um, many things. Unfortunately, um, in my view, uh, the both parties have given more and more power uh, especially with regard to foreign policy, to the president. And the Senate has been willingly giving away its authority. Um, and basically this leads, leads to, um, and then under Obama, Obama felt uh, forced to engage in, um, in uh, executive orders, executive actions. The problem with executive orders is they're very easily uh, made is made ineffective by the next president and that's what uh, trump did he immediately terminated all of the obama executive actions uh and with those um it so i will expect biden to engage especially if the senate is uh remains in republican control i think I'm rather optimistic about uh, Georgia, but my feeling is the Democrats are more likely, they're more, most likely is to lose both races. Um, But I'm hoping that they can get one of the positions. Um, uh, Loeffler has a lot of uh, uh, skeletons in her closet with corruption and other issues. Uh, may come back to haunt her during that race. Amazing amounts of money are going to run into Georgia until January. So it's possible the Democrats win both seats. If that happens, then we'll see Senate taking much greater role. If the Senate remains Republican with Mitch McConnell in control, then Biden's going to rely on executive uh, orders um, for much of the foreign policy. And just for our listeners, because I think in the Norwegian context and, and a lot of other countries' context, executive orders are slightly 
foreign concept. So can you explain just briefly what that actually means and what it does and why it is such a tenuous way of actually affecting change? Well, you're basically putting forth uh, a policy without it going through a normal legislative process. Um, you're basically making law without approval of Congress. And the Constitution is dictating that that's the job of Congress. But right now, with such high degrees of polarization and an unwillingness, uh, especially of the Republicans, to work across the aisle, um, it becomes the only way to move forward in making policy. Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges the U.S. is facing, which concerns domestic policy and foreign policy, is the asymmetrical ideological polarization we're seeing where the Republican Party has gone way to the far right, uh, whereas the Democratic Party has moved a little bit to the left. Uh, the party is defined by their representatives in, in Congress, which means that uh, just like the Obama era, Biden will find no one to work with. Uh, in Congress, which uh, is not how, of course, the American political system is supposed to work, um, and thus leading to untenable you know, tactics and strategies such as executive actions. So, of course, when Biden takes office on January 20th, he will be able to write a letter to the UN to ask that the U.S. be let back into the Paris P uh, peace accords. No, no, that was a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the climate accord. Um, and uh, we'll be able to take up work again on the Iran nuclear deal and all of these things. And that will perhaps seem like he's doing lots of, of, of big and important things. But like Scott says, they are reversible things. And if in four years there's an election and another right wing radical Republican is elected, then we're right back where we started. Yeah, there's no McCain in the Senate anymore. Um, there's and... Romney, but he's alone. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah. Also, we do have uh, the peculiar nature of Rand Paul. Um, so uh, actually, this is not a joke because uh, uh, I, have a, I have a good friend who used to be at Prio, Laura Lumpy. And uh, uh, there's a number of issues uh, in which they are engaging in, and she's on the a left lobbyist. Um, but Rand Paul, ironically, coming from the extreme libertarian right is uh, very much in support of a lot of America uh, is his deeply opposed to American adventurism, especially military adventurism. So there's a number of policies in which it would be possible for the Senate um, to get one person who's not part of um, who, who will support the democratic side on certain issues. Um, so that, Especially if it's forty nine um, fifty one, then uh, that's possible. Well, thanks for offering that little glimmer of uh, hope there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know that all of us could probably talk about this forever, uh, so I'm going to give you each uh, a chance to give some closing thoughts. But um, yeah, Hilda, yeah, closing thoughts. Anything that you think people should know or expect or. Um, I don't know, a call to action maybe for the Americans listening? <laughs> well, um, I, I can, gr greetings Americans. Uh, Norway is extremely pleased <laughs> with, <laughs> with the, the way this election went. Uh, but um, 
the the Norwegian perspective on the U.S. role in the world is, of course, that the last four years have been an absolute disaster, and that we really want things to go back to the way that they were. Uh, but I I think we can all agree that that this is a time of sort of choosing for the United States which how does it want to be in the world for the next century, whether it's an American century or not. Um, I think across several presidencies now, we've seen that what the U.S. has been doing hasn't really been working. And so y'all really need to figure your stuff out. I couldn't agree more. Scott, final thoughts? Um, I was surprised by an interview I saw with uh, Erno Solberg, um, who was... The Norwegian um, Prime Minister. Yeah, the Norwegian Prime Minister, who was... uh, I was surprised by how positive she was in expressing uh, having worked with the Trump administration. I know that she was received really well in Washington. Um, I think Trump... Uh, Norway fits into his uh, racist uh, worldview. It's very positive. We're not a shithole country. Uh, and uh, I also think that uh, Stoltenberg has been in an extremely unenviable position uh, in NATO and has, um, I think, done a, a fantastic job. And and my non-inside information, purely outside impression is that Stoltenberg has maintained a very cordial and uh, workable relationship with Trump. And I don't think that's uh, that is a task that should be applauded. I don't think that would have been easy at all. Um, so, I I think Norwegian politicians have been very skilled um, in dealing with uh, a difficult situation, and I don't think uh, uh, Canada, on the other hand, has not done a good job. Really stupid. Uh, uh, unnecessary, you know, own goals by uh, Trudeau and things like that, where he could have, he started off on a really good foot, giving all of these photos of him as a little kid with Trump when they met his father, Trudeau's father and things like that. That was a great move. And then after that, he just really uh, started blowing it. So in contrast to Canada, Norway's done well, I think in contrast, almost every country, Norway has done phenomenally well. Is in, this finally uh, our vindication, Norway. Scott? We've For decades, Norway's tried to create peace everywhere, and we've failed yeah. pretty much <laughs> everywhere. But in this important moment for world history, we finally did it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a masterclass in diplomacy, if nothing else. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, This has been great. I've learned a lot and I hope uh, I think everyone else will as well. So thank you both. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigg-Hauger. Music by Martin Rennemel.